Hello and welcome. At this time of year, politics has usually wound down for Christmas. MPs would be at home for carol concerts. Corridors of power would be emptying out, certainly of working ministers. Not so at the end of 2019. Central London already seems half deserted, but Westminster is still buzzing. So, with Johnson keen to get his Brexit deal through Parliament and keep faith with the voters who gave him an 80-seat majority, there's lots to talk about on the last episode of Inside Briefing this year. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, hosting this just ahead of the IFG's Christmas lunch, complete with traditionally fabulously geeky quiz. Was the general election really only a week ago? Now the government is setting out its agenda in a new Queen's speech. We've read reports of plans to overhaul the way Whitehall works, and the word radical is being scattered around just about as much as it was in Labour's plans. One man who is excited about it all is Douglas Carswell, the former Conservative MP who then famously defected to UKIP and played a big role in securing and then winning the 2016 Brexit referendum. We'll be speaking to him later on. And joining me today to work out what happens next are our Director of Research, Emma Norris, Senior Fellow Kath Haddon, and our special guest, journalist Chris Cook of Tortoise Media. Chris, Tortoise was set up to take a slow approach to the news, but it hasn't been slow, has it? How did it work out for you in the last Parliament? Well, it has been a bit of a challenge. The um, uh, One of the things we found, though, is that there's actually... Uh, the principle of slow news is rather than trying to sort of chase everything that's happened today... Uh, there's a lot more, you know, you can learn a lot more by taking a slower, more considered approach to things. So, um, for example, we one of the things, big things we published this year was a uh, like a, an eight-part account of the Theresa May uh, Brexit negotiations, um, which rather than focusing on who was in the room and who wasn't in the room, actually really looked at, you know, the dynamics of Irish politics, the dynamics of the way the European Commission is structured, the way that the talks are run so that people sort of understood the context. And the benefit of that approach is that once you can sort of see the rails on which things are moving, you actually don't need to follow lots of the ins and outs. You can sort of see the the, you know, the superstructure. And that's really the approach we hope to bring to things, so that rather than, you know, uh, following every single twist and turn and announcement, that you we can come to something every few months, say, and give you a, actually a deeper understanding than if you follow the who's up, who's down uh, drama. Kath, the Prime Minister has said the nation should take a break from politics over mm. Christmas, or at least that it would like to. Is your family going to stick by that? Uh, my family do the traditional thing of saying, I'm sure you don't want to talk about this, and then spend the next uh, rest of whatever meal we're in talking about it. But this year might be different because my mum has really taken to the podcast, uh, particularly after she got a mention the other week, so there's a good chance that I will be listening to back-to-back episodes on Christmas Day. Great. Emma, what about yours? Um, similar story from me. My father-in-law is absolutely obsessed with electoral reform, so I am anticipating lots of discussions about that, whether or not I want to participate. Mine too. Even if they finished with Brexit politics, they're going to start on the, the Donald Trump politics, I fear. OK, so let's turn to the image of the day. Prime Minister Boris Johnson at the head of a huge Conservative majority, launching his second Queen's speech in two months bit hard on the Queen straight before Christmas, keeping her from Balmoral, though she did play it down in a nice blue hat and coat, not the full regalia. What was different from the last Queen's speech, if anything? So I think if the last Queen's speech was part of an election campaign, essentially, or just beforehand, this sets out the government's kind of real plans for action. Um, and what we heard this morning was essentially a reiteration of the 100-day campaign pledges that they've made. So, you know, to introduce a bill on the NHS enshrining that £34 billion, um, greater investment in schools, sentencing reforms, something on workers' rights. So they're choosing to emphasise the core 100-day pledges rather than go bigger than that. Um, and I think they're 
choosing to focus on those 100 days because they want to emphasise that they're a government who wants to get things done and wants to get things done quickly um, and wants to get things done that aren't just Brexit. And there's quite a big focus on legislation, which you always see with new governments coming in after an election. Uh, But I think it's really interesting now because having a majority means that obviously getting legislation through is a lot easier. But the big challenges, they're really going to be around actually delivering on all of this stuff, things like social care and actually whether or not then the funding changes, the new nurses, you know, the money to the schools and so forth actually leads to the changes they're trying to introduce. Exactly. Um, You know, legislation's easy when you've got a majority of 80. I think on social care, on climate change, um, even on getting the NHS on a stable footing, um, these are the kind of things that are going to take longer and that we're not going to see the results of, I think, for at least a year or so. I think if you were to make a critique of Dominic Cummings's career in politics, one of the big ones, particularly based on his time in, in education in the early 2010s, was that he is a campaigner, he's not a public policy person. And actually you can also look at this basket of legislation as lots of it's sort of symbolic really like the the decision to you know put the nhs funding settlement into legislation well we would do that normally through you know through the the, the supply process like mm. this isn't this is an unnecessary this is too showy in your this view is, this is campaigning like they're still campaigning yeah and, and dominic cummings the prime minister's close advisor retaining this role i mean he's obviously steered a lot of the election and now he seems to be retaining the role in setting out this new agenda absolutely and I, one of the big questions they've got is there's a there's been an, a lot of big talk but i mean i i think we're gonna have to i mean this is the the ultimate conventional wisdom but the um whether they can deliver on lots of this stuff is is really tough. I mean, I, even even they're talking about you know sort of infrastructure. It's just really hard to build infrastructure. Like the the bit of government which routinely underspends is you know Whitehall capital budgets. The the it's really difficult to get money into things that people can see on the ground easily. It's really difficult to get new bridges up and get motorways widened and get new train lines built. But isn't the argument you, you ought to do it then right at the beginning? You ought to say right at the beginning, we're going to spend all this money. Here come the bridges. Here come the 40 hospitals or whatever, because it takes so long. Well, they have to do that also because, yeah, it takes so long. But also usually the story at the tail end of it is the overspends, the overruns and whether or not things are actually delivering what you want them to deliver. Um, and that's hard, but it's also hard because, yeah, if you're not in government at the end of when the, these things are coming to fruition, or for ministers who are launching these things. Remember, we've got a government at the moment um, which is very similar to the one before the election. We haven't had a major reshuffle. We are expecting one, but it's probably going to come after the exit date from the EU on the 31st of January, which means that you've got maybe a third of cabinet has been mooted, might be moved on, uh, cabinet might be reduced in numbers. So you'll have a whole no- load of new ministers coming through, taking on jobs, may have experience in that area, in that department, may not. And that's a big challenge for them as well. I mean, if you're talking about things like motorways or rails or, or something, you really want ministers who know something about what they're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that's not something that we always see in Whitehall. In fact, you often see the opposite, um, either people coming into a brief that they don't have experience of or only staying there for a year and being moved on. So we know this reshuffle is coming in February. I think the big question then is, is Johnson's plan to keep those ministers in post for some mm. years to start seeing things through, particularly if there's a strong delivery focus? Or is it going to be one of those governments where we see regular reshuffles, which mm. is clearly going to damage their ability to get of, things done? One of the most interesting things from the briefings at the uh, at weekend just after the election was talking about how the ministers chosen are going to be those who are most effective and this is something we always debate about reshuffles of whether or not it's about the politics of it it's about factions or for a new prime minister it's about bringing on a whole new generation 
But if there is that emphasis on effectiveness of ministers, I'm wondering what sort of criteria uh, the government. What do you think there should be? Because this is something we put a lot of weight on. The difference between a minister who knows how to get things done and those who find it really baffling, at least for some time, about how to work with the civil service. How to actually? Some of them have said to us, "How do I get stuff done?" To, to return actually to Dominic Cummings' experience in government is working with Michael Gove, who is routinely referred to as one of the most effective ministers. And their first partnership, if you like, was at the Department for Education. Yes, when they pushed through this you know, enormous reform to the funding of, of uh, secondary and primary schooling, where they uh, went through enormous changes to the to the curriculum. But it's worth sort of pausing because one of the one of the central problems of the of the sort of Michael Gove period was that a very large number of that amount of that reform was completely pointless. Like it, it didn't work. It hasn't had the, any of the effects they hoped for. And well, the, they would dispute that, of course. I mean, they they wouldn't actually. I mean, I think the department wouldn't. The department has taken the view. They, that they by, I meant Michael Gove, yeah, and Dominic Cummings. But. Michael Gove doesn't argue in good faith about most things. So I don't. I mean, I'm relaxed about saying he's wrong. Right. The the. Um, okay, part- I, I might just be you, you on that, I, I, on, on some of these points, but, but anyway, so so the, you, you, the you're telling us. The Department of view is that the structural reform, so the changes to the, the introduction of lots of academy chains, has had no effect on school standards. Like, it's just not worked. It's had no, they cannot find anything. Um, and the, it has also removed lots of the levers by which you might reform in the future. So it's been like a one-shot game, hasn't worked, from you know, as far as we can tell. Uh, you know, nine years on, we can't find find any positives. And the the part of the issue was that they were so convinced that anyone who raised raised any concerns about the way they were going about their business was an enemy. And, you know, they cast themselves in this sort of good and evil terms. So they were unable to take reasoned criti- criticism. They were unable to sort of listen to suggestions. People who suggested you might want to go a bit slower were, you know, cast as the enemy. So f- effectiveness in that case was, you know, he, he really changed things. I think I don't think anyone would think that it was, you know, as positive a record as it looked at the time. Let's come. Let's come on to because you're, you're raising a really important point, and you're raising. I mean, you're putting. I think rightly, Dominic Cummings uh, very centrally to this. It wasn't in the Queen's speech, um, but we've had a flood of reports since the election about what Dominic Cummings, um, this special advisor, uh, now intends for the structure of Whitehall and for the the spirit in which Whitehall and ministers go about their work and what what do we actually know about it so far? So I think there are kind of two big um, chunks to Cummings plans or at least the plans that are being briefed. Um, The first is around machinery of government change so we're going to see a number of departments kind of squashed together. We're we're expecting to see I mean it depends whether or not his briefings turn out to be accurate. That is very true and it's worth saying that lots of this is being gleaned from epic blog posts written you know five years ago so we'll see what Which begin with T.S. Eliot and and Joseph Conrad and stuff. There's a blog post by Dominic Cummings on his view of the world and Whitehall. But if uh, the blog posts and indeed the briefings are true, what we might see is DFID being put back into the FCO. This is the Department for International Development. That's right. Um, for um, the Department for International Trade being amalgamated with the, with parts of Bayes, um, a standalone climate change and energy department, so kind of back to the future there. And then I think we know, based on the Queen's speech, that DEXU is going to be folded down into Cabinet Office. So there's the kind of machinery of government change, but then you've got the broader civil service reforms that are being mooted as well. So 
a kind of greater emphasis on bringing outside expertise into the civil service, a strong emphasis on how you get the kind of incentives right in Whitehall, how you get the accountability chains right. So um, the civil servants are held responsible for what they've done and rewarded and for that rewarded, if it goes right. Yes. Exactly, and potentially rewarded for expertise um, as well as rewarded for kind of playing the policy game. So there's lots in there. And a lot of emphasis on regional development. This is something that Dominic Cummings and his... his uh, fellow sympathisers have written a lot about as well, haven't they? So emphasis on regional development and an emphasis on devolved decision making. Um, So, you know, how do you push policy decision making outside of Whitehall um, down to other structures? What should we make of it all? At the moment, it's hard to tell again how much of the... Because this goes back to the point that Chris was making before, that Dominic Cummings, the campaigner, he did a very good job over the course of the summer and then into the autumn of putting forward lots of proposals of things that the government might do, which then drove the debate and helped and was part of a sort of campaign to the election. So again, we don't know how much this is sort of throwing ideas out there and seeing, you know, what lands, what doesn't, or whether it is actually an insight into what now is going to happen. And also, because let's remember, he is a special advisor, but a lot of this stuff then comes down to cabinet decisions. So, And we don't know whether or not the cabinet are all signed up to all of these changes. That's a very good point. We, we hear both kinds of things from um, uh, from this new government. Um, uh, absolutely, an impatience with rules that might get in the way. Uh, for example, the Treasury Green Book, which determines uh, you know where investment should go and whether you say yes or no to a to, to a project. Um, but also, also judicial also, review, which is uh, an area we might get onto of that's one of the things that when, when, when the uh, people go to the courts to challenge yep. a government decision and so on. But. Um, but at the same time, we're also hearing we're hearing frustration with a lot of the things that, say, the IFG has been campaigning about for a long time, about the lack of accountability of civil servants making decisions, and then if it goes wrong, uh, they've moved on or something. There's no way of holding that person to account. Nor if it goes really right, or they've taken a you know a, 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 um, uh, they've made an argument for innovation, uh, that they get rewarded for that. And and I can um, while you can. Um, argue about the, the, the tactics uh, and the spirit of that episode in the Department of Education, which is some time ago. I mean, mm. you know, both these characters have moved on. Um, the, the themes that they're picking up are ones that, I must say, chime with a lot of what we have been pushing for. I, th- I think that's. I think you have to separate two things. The first is there is a, clearly a problem with the civil service at the moment. And I think you can... You have to. I think just my, one. Pardon? Just one. I well, guess. I mean, there's, there are. Uh, I think the, there are two historical phases. I think we have to deal with in the history of the recent civil service. So, in the 80s and 90s. You're getting onto my favourite topics here. Go on, okay, carry right. on. So <laughs> decade in, by decade, history. Yeah. In the, the 80s and 90s, <laughs> yeah, there, was a, there was a there was a process of getting rid of what looked at that moment like superfluous institutions. So there was this strimming away. This is the bonfire of the quangos. Yeah, and the the the, the best example, the one I keep returning to at the moment, is something that was originally called the Fire Research Station and then became the Buildings Research Establishment, which got privatised in 1997. And the purpose of lots of these micro-institutions was that you had a little bank of people in the state who knew about things. And if you had a question, if there was a fire in a tower block in the, in, you know, in the mid-90s, there was a group of, effectively, they weren't, I don't think they were actually technically civil servants, but they were effectively civil servants who weren't beholden to any companies, who were just working for the state's interests. Those people have all gone. And actually, we used to recruit the civil servants who ran policy out of those institutions too. There's a second phase too, which is you, you might call the Gus O'Donnellization of the... And he, and he was he was the head of the civil service. Yeah, Lord, Lord O'Donnell, yeah. He was, as he is, or, or was, God, as yeah. it, his, his, uh, his initials have famously uh, led him to be called. And, and he was the head of the civil service at yeah. the point of great change. And he was, 
one of the things that became uh, the civil service moves in in waves, and under Gus O'Donnell's leadership, it became a place where you did better by being uh, having broader experience, not uh, narrow experience. So if you wanted to get ahead, you jumped around, you bopped, you know popped from place to place to place. You didn't institutions weren't expected to grow their own expertise. They you know they bring in generic managers from yeah, elsewhere. Generalists. The Generalist. idea that government is, is the same, that bright people can... Exactly. Can, can... A guy with a sharp pencil and an economics degree... Or even possibly a, a woman. It's usually a bloke. Um, can can hop into a senior job elsewhere in government. And the... Um, I, don't, I say it's usually a bloke as a point of fact. Actually, point, uh, well, it, it's changing. It's changing quite quite a bit. But you know, we 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 you know, we get the, um, the the thrust of that. But Emma, this is something you've worked on a lot. And what happens to policy expertise in the civil service? Well, I mean, I think the challenge that you see at the moment under the system uh, of Gus O'Donnell, as Chris describes, is a focus on generalism. So you have people working in a policy area, say homelessness, um, for maybe a year, a year and a half if you're lucky, and then they move on. And so over time, you lose all your institutional knowledge um, in a policy area, making it very difficult to make progress, to hold any of the expertise you need to make good policy decisions. Um, And so I think potentially what some of the Cummings reforms are aiming at is saying, let's try and embed a greater level of expertise in the civil service and let's try and create a kind of incentive structure that doesn't force people to move every year and a half but perhaps says to them let's try and keep you in post for three or four years and reward you for spending that time in post and gaining that expertise I mean, and making progress. Yeah, the one thing I push back on both of these about, though, is that this is a much longer issue that the civil service has had. And actually, if you go back much further than the 1980s, that same generalism point existed, but it was because people stayed in post for long periods of time, became very stayed. The reason why they in- introduced internal markets, trying to you know, allow people to sort of move around more and to be more competitive in, in hunting for jobs was because there was too much sort of static um, lack of movement of civil servants. Absolutely. And that's why I say trying to incentivize people to stay mm. in post for three or four years. It's the years. right balance. We don't want a you know, return to people staying in post for kind of 10, 12 years at a time. But I think we want to move away from 18 months, even less than that. And that can't be good for Whitehall. OK, we can only be at the beginning of a conversation, which is uh, uh, going to go on uh, for years, I suspect, um, about what all these changes mean. And of course, Dominic Cummings has not said anything uh, formal explicitly about, about all this. So we've got all that to unpack as it becomes clear. But let me just ask you all finally, really really briefly. Um, is it a mistake of this government to go on plunging into, if it does, kind of big departmental changes? Is that a distraction from Brexit and the NHS? Or is it the right time some for of, what they're calling radical change? Some of them certainly make sense. Uh, getting rid of the department for exiting the EU, we've said that they should do that. And we that's now going end of January, they said. End of January, yep. Um, and that means then you have a different focus. We still don't know where then all of the future trade agreement negotiations will happen, whether that will be right, pushed so some of this 10. makes Some of this makes sense. Yeah, some of this makes sense. Uh, some of the other changes, though, much harder. I think that some of the changes make sense. I think the big question is, does Whitehall have the capacity to get them done on this time frame? You know, at a time where we're pushing full speed ahead with Brexit and government's just outlined a relatively significant legislative agenda. Um, are they going to be able to completely reorganise the departmental structures of Whitehall and the civil service itself? And we put out a report saying it takes an awful lot of time and money. I think there's a there's a really good case for actually just a pause at this point. If we didn't have Brexit to sort of pile through, there are lots of bits of government that just need to recover and they need to recover their capacity and they need to... The best education reform of recent years was Nikki Morgan because she didn't do anything and just let the system sit for a moment. And actually lots of things that people had previously done actually started to bear fruit because of that. 
In 2014, Douglas Carswell quit the Conservative Party and defected to Nigel Farage's UKIP, later explaining that he had switched parties to bring about fundamental change in British politics. Well, that certainly happened, and Douglas Carswell did play his bit. He's no longer in Parliament, but he's still agitating for more change. Have his Brexit dreams come true in quite the way he expected? Kath hadn't met him to find out. Douglas Carswell, thanks for joining us. Uh, Explain to us what you're up to at the moment. I stood down as an MP two years ago, and I've watched with horror over the past couple of years as MPs make such a mess of Brexit. But I'm now overjoyed because finally we have a government that's getting on with Brexit. And I'm, I'm really excited not just because the referendum is now going to be enacted, but I think we can really start to change and update the way the whole country's run. I think things, whether you're left or right, whether you're leave or remain, they're things we can and should do better, and I, I think that's going to happen now, and I find this really exciting. And uh, that's what we've been talking about today is some of those changes, uh, the Conservative plans for the Constitution, page 48 of their manifesto. Well, you've been reading those. What do you think the, their priorities should be? I think the priority of the person who drafted page 48 was to say things without saying enough to lose points during an election. There's actually very little there. Sure, they say they're going to get rid of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, they're going to have boundary changes so it's more fair and equitable, but they only hint at some of the broader changes to come. There's reference to judicial review there. This is the power that judges have given themselves to, in effect, strike down what ministers decide to do. Um, They talk about changes in the relationship between the executive and the judicial and the legislative branch. And they talk about setting up a commission to to look at this, House of Lords reform and and one or two other things. I think this hints at actually a broader package of reform that is is on the way. Um, And I, I suspect that actually quite a lot of thought has been given to this. Um, It would be very tempting to look at the government's changes in, in terms of changing the legislature, the House of Commons, the House of Lords, the judiciary, and think of it as a knee-jerk reaction to some of the problems we've had over the past two years with the so-called putrid parliament and and the failures of of, of the Brexit blockers. Um, Actually, I I think that's wrong. I think a lot of the ideas behind page 48 in the Tory party manifesto are a reflection of 10, 15 years, careful thought. How do you ensure good governance? How do you learn from some of the mistakes that Tony Blair made when he came to office with good intentions to reform the system and found it frustrating. Tony Blair gave that famous speech where he talked about the scars on his back. This lot, I think, want to make sure they change things at the outset so in two, three years' time, they're not frustrated. One of the reasons why we've not had effective public administration in this country is because the centre is fractured between three different branches, the, the Downing Street branch, the Cabinet Office branch, and the Treasury branch. Now, Blair tried to deal with this by having a very close relationship with Gordon Brown, and, and, and how that worked out is the subject of all sorts of, um, well, political drama. Uh, David Cameron, I think, tried a similar thing, but was thwarted because he was in a coalition, and he resorted to having the quad, but never quite got to grips with the machinery. I think this government needs a unified strategic core. Call it what you like. I don't want to label it because that would give it all sorts of soap operatic implications. But if you had a unified core that was able to determine the priorities of each department of state, mandate a team of ministers, and most importantly, a team of civil servants to go away and deliver, and oversee the budget. If you look at what Ireland does, they have something called a a Department for Public Expenditure and Reform. New Zealand has a department called the um, State Services Commission. Those sorts of element of budget accountability and oversight over delivery need to be hardwired into the centre in a way that they're just not. 
And I, I mean, these changes are very similar to the debate we've been having for nearly 100 years now about having a department for the Prime Minister. One of the reasons that never makes it through is that other cabinet ministers are reluctant to give the Prime Minister more power. It goes to the heart of our collective cabinet responsibility approach. Do you think this cabinet would be willing to support Boris Johnson if he did do such a thing? I, I'm not going to label a unified centre and a strategic um, cohesion at the centre with a particular label because then it, it, you enter the realm of soap opera. But I think for me the most significant lesson or one of the most significant lessons of the Blair government was they came in with a clear majority to make changes. After four years Blair found he was thwarted and frustrated. He then ended up setting a delivery unit and what was really significant is how after he left that delivery unit born out of frustration and a desire to make sure that real change stuck the delivery unit itself fell um, into abeyance. You clearly need to learn the lesson of that. Um, I, I think structural change is needed. Another area where structural change is needed, in order to solve really complex public policy problems, and I can think of many, many complex public policy problems which the British state has neglected to resolve for, for, for decades, in order to resolve them, you need to build what you might call high-performance teams of individuals. That often means bringing in people who aren't civil servants, who weren't in their 20s sitting civil service exams in Guildford or wherever it is they sit them, people who've actually gone out there and got real-life experience of addressing public policy problems in a different realm. You need to be able to assemble those teams, and you need to do it in a non-traditional departmental setting. In other words, you need to set up cross-departmental teams that have a clear leadership, a clear budget, a clear mandate, and clear authority of number 10 behind it. And if you can do that, you can begin to address these problems. If you leave it to the silo system of departments of state to manage some of these problems, in 20 years' time, we still won't have enough airports. We'll still have an NHS that isn't producing and delivering enough. We'll still have a transport system that doesn't adopt many of the innovations that countries around the world are now implementing. There are all sorts of these complex, really difficult to solve public policy problems, but they can only be resolved by building these new teams in a completely unconventional way. And one of the uh, issues of this constitutional reform, the review that the government might want to put in place, is how they go about doing it. Do you think there's scope at the moment for building a cross-party alliance and looking through these problems? I mean, clearly, there needs to be a period of reflection on constitutional reform, and we need to make sure that it's not just Tory ink that's drafting the changes. But there are good people in this country on the left. There are good people in the sort of non-aligned middle. I'm, you know, I'm not aligned to any party myself. There are people from all sorts of traditions in this country who I think recognise we can do better than what we've got. I would just say that the new Constitutional Reform Commission needs to recognise that the solution to these problems is outward accountability. You don't create a better constitution and you don't create better constitutional arrangements by creating a system of inward accountability so that, you know, Supreme Court justices have a greater say. Codifying the constitution in a way that gives lawyers more power is not the way to do it. You need to make sure that ordinary folk in places like County Durham have a far greater say ever. Who sits in Parliament and represents them and who their representatives can hold to account and how. A decade ago, you led uh, calls for to remove Speaker Michael Martin because you said he couldn't restore faith in politics. Do you think John Burko did manage to do that? To be fair to Burko, and I at times find it rather difficult to be fair to Burko, but to be fair to Burko, he did some good things. 
as an activist speaker, and I think a speaker should be activist, he was in favour of a legislature that didn't just give the executive a free pass. And we need to make sure that the House of Commons doesn't give ministers a free pass. I would like to see select committees beefed up. I would like to see a ministerial level of pay for the chairman of select committees. And I would like to see every member of a select committee given a, a significant salary increase so it becomes a career path for some of the brightest and the best. I'd like confirmation hearings so they can hold to account ministers. Um, and I would like to see the House of Commons continue with some of the innovations that John Burko brought in, such as urgent questions, and, and basically making sure that ministers who drop the ball are exposed for dropping the ball, and if necessary, if they're not up to it, sacked. But I think Burko went beyond that. I think he, he extended some of that idea of a more active legislature, and he, he ultimately, I think, lost sight of, of the purpose of a legislature. We ended up in a situation where rules were being remade on the hoof in order to stop something that politicians like John didn't like. Um, so, you know, up until, up until the referendum result and up until the Brexit blockers in Parliament tried to thwart the referendum result, I would have given John 9 out of 10. Um, I think he's probably on, in fairness, 4 out of 10. You're an architect of uh, a lot of this movement, your decision to quit the Conservative Party, join UKIP. How do you think that the Conservative Party are doing now on delivering on Brexit? What do you think the challenges are going to be for them? It rather amuses me that the thing I left the Conservative Party joined UKIP triggered a by-election over, which was this idea that we should leave the European Union, was considered to be so ultra, so, so, so off the wall, that um, it was incompatible with being... A, uh, wanting to leave the European Union was incompatible at the time with being a Conservative. Um, the Conservatives have now just won a stonking majority by prioritising getting us out of the EU. It, it's wonderful news. I think it's, it's fantastic. And I, I think the Conservatives are doing absolutely everything right. What we need to really guard against when we leave the European Union is to lose some of that liberal vision. I think that the reason why we won a majority for leaving is because Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, Priti Patel, Gisela Stewart portrayed this idea of leaving the European Union as a fresh beginning, a new beginning for our country. Um, I, I think this idea that actually our best days lie ahead. I know that's a politician's cliche, but it's a lot more attractive than the uh, uh, narrow idea uh, promoted by some politicians that actually the 1950s was perfect and, and the world's going to the dogs. If, if we can retain that optimism and this sense that actually we're leaving the European Union and now we can change our country for the better, I, I think that 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 would be not only being true to what Vote Leave stood for, I think it means that a lot of those decent, good, patriotic Remainers who have been a bit nervous about what leaving the European Union entails, I think they can be reassured. And I think reassuring them is an absolute priority. Douglas Carswell speaking to Kath Haddon. Now, as we look at what this Conservative Prime Minister might do next, let's pause to reflect on what his predecessor, but one, David Cameron, did with his time in office. Chris, you've got a long piece out today looking at the Cameron legacy. Uh, have you been kind to him? Uh, no, 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 I haven't. I think the um, <laughs> that was a leading question. No, no, in, it's, in its uh, way, yeah. it's. Um, I think one of the one of the oddities of the sort of the debate at the moment is there is a sort of moderate Tory view that David Cameron was, you know, like Anthony Eden, a guy who made one fatal error. Um, so Anthony Eden, uh, his 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 government fell in 1956 over uh, actually 57, 57, yeah, 57, yeah, yep. um, over the Sorry. Suez crisis, a botched invasion <laughs> of uh, Egypt. Um, and uh, Cameron fell over, see, over over Brexit. 
But I think that's enormously unkind to Anthony Eden and enormously kind to David Cameron. A lot of what we're talking about in terms of having to reform the state, so the weakness of the civil service in part comes because without thinking, you know, they took a you know a strimmer to the top end of the civil service and took out lots of, of its experience. One of the problems of public services at the moment is some incredibly poorly thought through reforms were rolled out all over the place. It is extraordinary that uh, it's actually... For, for example, what? It's, well, I mean, so universal credit, a reform of the benefit system, has been was botched. The schools reform were botched. The health reforms, you know, Andrew Lansley's Act, the current, there is a currently a reform going on under the bonnet inside the NHS, which is taking place by ignoring the legislative framework that David Cameron put in place, because they have to get around it, because it's so so botched. Uh, local government is in meltdown, social care is, you know, the crisis has got worse and worse and worse. And the, the, the capacity of the state to repair itself even has been enormously damaged by his legacy. A lot of what Dominic Cummings and Doris Johnson are going to be doing over the next few years, both in terms of Brexit, but also in terms of reforming the state, is really about literally just trying to undo problems that were created by David Cameron's dismal, dismal premiership. All right, there's a view for you. Um, but some of this was to do with the financial crisis, which started obviously at the beginning of the coalition uh, government that David Cameron presided over. I mean, do you accept in any way that he, he had to do something? So I think you can argue, I mean, he certainly had to do something. In 2010, we thought we had an 11% budget deficit. But the and it would have taken a brave prime minister to sort of stick by their guns and insist there'd be no attempt to restrain spending. But there are two things here. The first is um, that the it became clear that the strategy of reduction, reducing the deficit wasn't working the way they'd hoped quite fast. The second is that the productivity gains they hoped to get from the public services as they cut spending on public services. So the amount of bang they thought they would get per buck just didn't come through. Uh, it became clear pretty fast in 2013, 2014, that the public services were starting to fall over under the budget strains. And he just sort of blithely went on through. By- so some, some, some of them were. Some were more protected, I, uh, like education. Emma, this is something we've done quite a bit of work on our, in our performance tracker with SIPFA. And um, the, 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 um, we found quite a lot of efficiency gains, at least for a few years, didn't we? Exactly. I mean, we found that services were able to make... Um, Many efficiencies for the first couple of years more recently have really been struggling and were at the point that they need more investment. And so clearly there was low-hanging fruit there, but I think we're, we're well beyond uh, that. And we began now. to see that, indeed, the performance of public services did did begin to drop in many cases. Yeah, and I think oh, if you look at the most of the sort of critical indicators, and sort of, they all start to turn in sort of 2013-14 across all the big services. Yeah. There is a moment where it becomes clear we're running out of fat to cut. But actually my point is really not so much that there were wrong to 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 go after austerity is actually more lots of the reforms he pursued he did not and where the part of the point of the book is uh, of the pieces i've gone through his memoir he didn't know why he was pursuing them so he pursued universal credit for example because he believed it was possible to get more money not working than working every, yeah. every party did agree at the beginning that this sounded but, like a good idea of bringing the benefits together but that's not they, what he did yeah. that's not why he thought he was doing it he mm. thought that the problem in schools was that local governments uh, in England was much too strong local government in England has been irrelevant to schools since the 80s he thought that um, he was very proud of one of his reforms uh, the IFG uh, fellow Nick Timmins says his best reform was to 
to the pension system. It's clear from the book he doesn't know what he did. He's, he doesn't know the difference between okay. different bits of the pension system. But that, so that leads me to it. So if we're talking about a prime minister in history, the key there is actually how much was it down to him and how much did he just preside over it? Obviously, prime ministers, we're talking about you know, Boris Johnson's premiership. The key is how much does he actually understand, know the policy detail? How much is he just a sort of guide to the other key people in his cabinet, in his staff, and allowing them to do it? So was it Cameron responsibility because he didn't build the right team, he didn't challenge, you know, how much was George Osborne responsible for it? How much was it the people who were in charge of those reforms? And why is it you put it at Cameron's door more than anyone else? Well, so, I think, sorry. I think it's Cameron's responsibility to some extent, for instance, on the Lansley reforms because of the sheer bandwidth um, that shadow um, secretaries of state and then secretaries of state were given to develop mm. really critical policy reforms without proper oversight from the centre. I mean, it's exactly the same with universal credit, you know, a fully packaged up policy coming into government and being being implemented without proper oversight, without proper understanding of, you know, what the implications of it were. And I think that one of the lessons from both Lansley and from universal credit is do not walk into government with fully packaged up mm. reforms that don't match what your PM's priorities are and that have no understanding of the system that you're implementing them into. Um, it was really that implementation I guess, that saw yeah. Ansley and Universal Credit. No, I, guess, I guess what I'm saying is, like, is it a problem that when we have a prime minister who perhaps is more of a chairman rather than a chief executive? I think one of the things we've got to look at with prime ministers is partly how do we support them they have a very tiny staff it's all about getting the right people in and this is what's so interesting about Boris Johnson is has he got the right people around him will they work effectively as a team you know the first few months of Theresa May before the 2017 election uh, she had Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill and by all accounts it was a you know a strong team that was working but then on the flip side of the general election, you had all the stories coming out about, uh, you know, how hard it was for cabinet ministers dealing with them and the sort of bottlenecks that appeared in Number 10. So really knowing what's going on in Number 10 and how the prime minister is supported is kind of key to their success. And we've done a lot of work with uh, oppositions as they prepare for government. And we're always very struck by just how steep the learning curve is going to be, however much thought, however many five-inch ring binder files that they uh, that they have. It's just an incredibly steep um, task to take on. It is a very steep learning curve, which is why they should read our briefing paper on becoming Prime Minister. Back again, the dawn of data. It's Speed Data with Gavin Freegard in a special Christmas portcullis sort of sweater. The House of Commons Christmas jumper, no less. Thank you very much indeed, Gavin. You've been running our Reshuffle live blog. You've had quite a workout then. Um, well, probably less of one, well, even less of one than we were expecting. Um, when I was preparing for uh, the podcast this week, I did think of a few things to sonify. One was possibly looking at the Labour vote chair to In the Bleak Midwinter. Another was to look at the, the 12 days of Brexmas. On the first oh day of Brexmas, my true no. love gave to me a border down the Irish Sea. But in the end, we went with the reshuffle, which has, of course, gripped the nation. So what you're about to listen to, um, there were 33 ministers attending Cabinet before the election was called. I've given each of them a note in a tune that you may recognise. If they've stayed in post, you will hear the note as it's supposed to be played. If they moved or if they left, then you'll hear something different. So let's give it a listen. The more that you recognise the tune, the less turnover there's been. 
So as you can see, only one person um, actually left the cabinet, which was Alan Cairns, uh, the Secretary of State for Wales, who's replaced by Simon Hart. We were possibly expecting Nikki Morgan to depart um, mm-hmm. as she'd stood down as an MP, but she has just become the first person from the House of Lords to be in charge of a department since uh, Lord Donis and Lord Mandelson at the end of the Brown government. And we think that Schrodinger's cabinet minister, Zach Goldsmith, is still in cabinet, um, but has not yet been announced whether he's going to be elevated to the Lords or not. Not. He's so in it and he's out of it at the same time. He's in it and out of it at the same time. We're all expecting a much bigger reorganisation in February. And what kind of music will you use then? Well, you'll you have won't to, be able to do Christmas tunes You'll anymore. have to wait and see, Kath. Oh. Maybe we'll finally get some a, a full orchestra into the booth. IFG ringtones going to be available maybe in the new year. Gavin, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of Inside Briefing. Thanks to my panel, thanks to Chris Cook for being with us. As it's the last episode of 2019, let's end by asking each of you for your key moment of the year. Emma? Um, Bit of a cop-out, but probably uh, the Blythe Valley result. I think, you know, we spent the entire year leading up to this point. Is there going to be a political realignment or not? And I think that early result kind of answered that question. I think the big question is, is that alignment, realignment here to stay or is it a one-off? Kath? For me, it was the indicative votes that we had back in the early spring, which was Parliament's opportunity to try and show it could find a process of finding a solution to Brexit rather than just keep saying what it didn't want and failed dismally. Chris? I go for actually the result in Sheffield Hallam, where the Liberal Party showed that even in places where it was dug in for years and years and years, it's struggling to come back to where it was. So the realignment may be happening on one side of the of the the line but it doesn't appear to be you know taking full effect on the other and i'm going to go for brenda hale lady hale reading out in this crystal clear almost girlish voice she has why the supreme court unanimously did not agree with the government it's been the kind of year that has books and academic papers written about it the first drafts of that history probably arriving in the new year 2020 whatever happens is going to be very different indeed and Inside Briefing will be back in the new year, ready to explain whatever happens next. So don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you can stream us on Spotify too. And do give us an early Christmas present by leaving a review on iTunes. If your family isn't going to take the Prime Minister's hint and lay off politics for a fortnight, you need ammunition for political arguments with relatives, you can always visit our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk and check out our work over the last year, or indeed if you just need an escape from Christmas. We hope you've enjoyed these podcasts since we started all those long months ago, right at the start of the election campaign. Happy Christmas to everyone. We'll see you in the new year. <laughs>